Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Thanks for all the kind words about our new look for season two. Keep the messages coming. You can find me at Ian Andrews DC or reach us at Chainalysis on either X or LinkedIn. Bridge hacks, phishing scams, malware designed to steal wallet passphrases. Those are just a few of the concerns you might encounter in a typical day as a crypto investor. So I've been wondering, is there any way to get some peace of mind? In this episode, I speak with the CEO and co-founder of Fairside Network, Brandon Brown. He's created a platform to offer decentralized insurance. It protects users against those types of losses, the ones that keep crypto investors up at night. Brandon and I go deep into how the platform works and why Fairside is better than alternative offerings. We also discuss the challenges of navigating the regulatory landscape in the insurance industry. And I learned that Fairside operates as a cost-sharing network rather than a traditional insurance product. Last thing before we head into the episode, there's some breaking news from the United Kingdom. On October 26th, the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill received royal assent to become an act of parliament and entered into UK law. With this, UK law enforcement will significantly expand their powers over crypto assets, which could lead to an uptick in seizures and confiscations. If you're interested, you can find out all the details in a video update from Chainalysis head of UK policy, Jordan Wayne. As always, the link is in the show notes. Also, a quick reminder before you listen to the episode, although we're discussing wealth management and investments a lot, please remember folks, our podcasts are for informational purposes only, and they're not intended to provide legal, tax, financial, or investment advice. Listeners should consult their own advisors before making any of those types of decisions. Today, I'm joined by the CEO and co-founder of Fairside Network, Brandon Brown. Brandon, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Brandon, I have tons of questions for you. Let's start with the big one. Decentralized insurance. What is it and what drew you to work on this problem? Well, I, you know, if you really think about decentralized insurance, I believe that it's yet to be defined. I think that when you look at current carriers or protocols in the space, I think the space will develop and look far different in five to 10 years. Um, I think you're going to get more of a replication of the traditional insurance system where today I think you're seeing um, different models, mostly trying to reinvent the insurance wheel when honestly the insurance like financial model was never a broken model. It was, it's very robust. It is far more resilient than like the systems that we're seeing in DeFi put out today. And I think that over time, you're going to see that that replication come on chain and get the capital efficiencies that traditional insurance systems are seeing today. So I think it's, it's one of those issues that hasn't quite been solved yet. I think you make a great point there, right? That insurance, property, casualty, life insurance, one of the greatest businesses in the world today, right? In Arguably. terms of profits. Yeah. <laughs> you know, incredibly robust. You don't see many headlines about insurance companies failing. You know, you just continually see uh, returns of capital to shareholders. Specifically, when you take insurance as a product and bring that into the world of cryptocurrency and specifically decentralized finance, like what does that look like? Why as a, as a consumer would I want an insurance product in the, the world of crypto? Well, I think with any valuable asset, that you hold. Typically people insure everything of value in their life. If you can lose it and you don't mind, then no problem. But you see people insuring, I mean, I've seen it in the traditional sector, people insure the smallest of assets, rowboats, right? You're like, yeah, you know, but this is like what people care about because people work hard and they want to retain, you know, their financial wherewithal. And so insurance is that vehicle to allow people to do that. And I would argue that 
your crypto assets are soon, if not already, the most valuable assets that you hold today. And so insuring them makes all the sense in the world, but you need the right vehicle in order to do that. And I think that adoption rates, even stakeholder adoption, which is like the underpinning of this of these networks suffers from the adoption level um, due to underlying issues within the protocol. Um, but also the product doesn't meet the needs of the individual consumers. And so we're seeing products that you know require you to purchase cover for every single protocol that you interface with, uh, manage the duration of time, pay a premium for each one of those different positions that you have. It's just, it's become cumbersome and doesn't solve the real issue. DeFi, insurance right as we as we think of it should harness the power of blockchain in order to make these things more transparent make these things easier from an onboarding process but i don't think we've done that we've sort of reinvented the insurance wheel and that's been the mistake so far i believe in this space it's interesting to think about this idea of like i i certainly have some crypto assets they sit in a metamask wallet i've never thought about getting an insurance policy so i would imagine for a lot of a lot of listeners this is a fairly new concept but you make a great point if you own an nft that is you know maybe worth a hundred thousand dollars or a few million dollars or you're holding a large amount of bitcoin or ethereum that's something that you know the the risk of loss is definitely greater than zero, right? We all read headlines about SIM swapping thefts or you know seed phrase exposure, and all of a sudden everything's gone. That seems to happen on the daily. And then also there's the other side of it. I assume you're protecting against things like protocol loss. So when we see one of these these bridge hacks or some other sort of manipulation that results in in a failure of a protocol, I mean these are all very real events that that people are subject to with regularity. It seems like in the ecosystem. That that's why I would want an insurance policy. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, from a consumer standpoint, we did quite a bit of market research starting in 2018 as to, well, at that time, it was basically how big is this market, right? <laughs> like we needed to understand how big the market was. Are there consumers that have a propensity to buy insurance? What cover types are they after? And we did that all the way through. The last one was completed in March of 2023. And so we've done four different surveys. And the big telling factor right now is that today people want protection for their wallet. And we look at it as the essential line of coverage, right? Like it's the one, like the wallet itself is key infrastructure into crypto and the adoption of Web3, that it's secure and that it also can be protected from insurance products um, or insurance alternative products. And that's really what DeFi insurance today really is, is. It's a bunch of alternatives to like this traditional system. And so, you know, from, from that aspect, we have to have a large enough market to hit some kind of critical mass to support an like any sort of insurance alternative product or in insurance products in the space. Now, that's where we start as our baseline is that we need to cover the wallet. Because we're looking at poor adoption rates on DeFi and poor adoption rates on exchange, when I say DeFi, of DeFi coverage, not, not DeFi itself. Um, that's growing nicely. Yeah. But the but the coverage um, being taken out on those is suffering for a multitude of different reasons. And so when we look at things like the bridge hacks and these protocol failures, yeah, there's a market for it and we can solve that and we have built products for it, but it won't be our product launch. Our product launch will be the essential line is to bring in a mass adoption because when you focus all of your effort on DeFi insurance, like focusing on the protocol losses, for users, you get into an area where you only have 3 million active users and they're very risk on users trading yield for risk. 
And so now there's a segment of that, 3 million people that will purchase coverage, but will you be able to hit critical mass and will you be able to be a sustainable network um, with just the risk adverse that are in that group? It's not known yet. And so we will, what we believe though, is that if you can onboard through where you have the largest market thickness, which is in the wallet side, and you have the largest demand on the product. When we did surveys, it was overwhelming the number of people who wanted to purchase wallet insurance and cover their wallets. So from that aspect, if you can onboard many users on the wallet side, it's easier to offer them an endorsement or some sort of like layer on top of their Fairside membership that would then give them DeFi cover and give them another endorsement for exchange coverage or something like that, or more third-party risk. That then becomes a sustainable model when you can start to layer these coverages on top of each other. And that's really where our focus is at, is to start with the wallets and then move into the other areas. Now, I've got all sorts of questions about the business model of insurance, and, and I'll probably ask some dumb questions here because I'm, I'm, I'm a consumer of insurance, not an expert in the industry like you are. When I think about an insurance business, it, it seems like the most critical thing is the calculation of risk, right? This, this concept of actuarial tables. In a simple product like life insurance, it's a prediction of you know, life expectancy of a given individual you know, with, with a whole bunch of risk factors, I think, calculated in. Like, were you a smoker? Are you overweight? And and that allows you to establish likelihood of someone living or dying beyond a period. That drives a premium cost. You have enough of those policies, like as long as you're generally correct in your in your guess of life expectancy, the business model works, right? People pay in a premium, they get paid, you know, when a when a policy hits, a policy condition hits, it's it's paid out. But the insurance company continues, uh, you know, as a as a profit making business. How in the world do you calculate that risk of loss in something like crypto? I can't even imagine where I would start to figure out the premium calculations and the risk of of loss analysis. Like, it is, maybe start there with the business. How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, we, we we looked at it differently than than others in the space. I mean, there's there's models out there that people are using, like prediction models and capital allocation. We don't believe those are accurate to creating any sort of underwriting profit. We believe that you have to go with the actuarial modeling side of things, uh, which is science-based. And so we, you know, we looked at things like phishing attacks, social engineering, and, and those things happen today, right? In, in traditional finance and, you know, data is stolen all the time, cyber risk exists. And so, you know, we started modeling the amount of losses that are happening in crypto against, you know, these known losses in crypto against some of these more traditional actuarial models. And, and came up with a blended approach that really allowed us to create a starting point. And that's really what your, your actuarial model is supposed to do is provide you this really robust, but believable and starting point for any sort of like insure tech startup. And so, you know, with that starting point, you know, we've been using actuarial data and, and using some of the reports that you guys put out and created a partnership with Chainalysis on different levels for wallet screening and, and all these other things to start to cut down on some of the potential losses that would happen in our network initially. You know, for us, it was to go with the science-based approach where people, you know, interface with wallets, you know, with the you know, dark web and all these other things. Like we can cut a lot of that out through some of the services that you guys offer. But for us, it was to look at more of the traditional modeling and then blend that with known losses in crypto as well as look at some of the reports that you guys are putting out and get some other data points from, from others as well. 
So that's interesting. So you're actually taking chain analysis address screening and you're cutting off maybe what would be considered the riskiest part of the pool in the same way that like certain insurance companies, if you've had two DUIs and totaled three cars, they're just not going to write you a car insurance policy. You're taking a similar approach and saying, hey, if, if a given wallet is known to interact with darknet markets regularly, you know what, that's just going to be somebody we're not going to allow to be covered in this case. And so you're kind of containing the risk profile to what would generally appear to be a, a less risky crowd in terms of some of the choices, behavioral choices they're making. Yeah, some of that. And then we also look at like a highly diversified model. And so in a highly diversified model, we spread risk across a much larger network. So stakeholders uh, have risk reduced positions um, as a stakeholder and it, it creates sustainability within the system. And and using strong actuarial modeling, what it allows us to do is look at our frequency and severity of loss. And then if we need to adjust, premiums could go down, right? Like, you know, like your membership fee into the network could go down. Um, but you have to um, you have to have an actuarial based model in order to get to the desired financial outcome you want in the future. Uh, if you use these other types of premium allocation and in wisdom of the crowd, it, it doesn't doesn't there's no scientific basis to produce you know, an underwriting profit, you know, for the network of any kind. And, and that's where we've really focused our attention is to really charge a higher premium than you intend to pay out in losses on an annual basis. And that's the basis of this model. And when you marry these models with blockchain, you're able to get these transparency, the efficiency, all the things that people um, are looking for in their insurance systems and cut down an extreme amount of expenses, which then can lead to far greater sustainability of the network. Now, one thing that I think most insurance companies, you know, they have a very large pool of capital, right? All these premiums that are paid in. And I think they create a large amount of profit for the business and their shareholders by investing that capital pool, right? Now, generally, I think it's it's low risk asset, like you know, government debt or, or highly rated corporate bonds is kind of the model. So low risk assets. But that money then goes to to kind of fuel a profit engine because they you know generally don't have high demand for premium payouts, right? If they've done a good job with those actuarial tables, is Fairside taking an approach where where you're doing something like this as well, where you're actually investing the the premium deposits that go into the protocol, or have you taken a different approach? Well, you know the, the companies you described didn't start that way. They started small and then they built to a position where they have you know, assets in reserve and surplus that, you know, they're able to then take those assets and then create investment income off of them. But they didn't start that way, right? Like in the early systems, and everyone knows that that's kind of how an insurance system works. But in DeFi, you know, as you see it today and DeFi carriers that are coming out, you know, and protocols that are offering cover, I think it's important that they don't invest those assets. Because when you see someone like the whole thesis is around the idea of creating an underwriting profit, well, that's, I mean, people can do staking on their own early in a system, right? This product itself needs to be sustainable and work. And those risk-based assets that are provided to that network need to be there early in the system to float any sort of loss that the system has if the frequency ends up being slightly higher than anticipated on an annual basis early in a year, then you need those risk-based assets to float the system until your premium allocations, your premium generation is then basically created in, in a way that the premium allocation, if it's annualized, the losses end up being less than the amount of premium that you've collected. But you have to get to a point where you can do that. And that's what risk-based assets in the system are meant to do. 
is to continue because if you've done your actual modeling correctly, you will have an underwriting profit at the end of the year, especially when you're talking about using blockchain technology, which increases that efficiency so much that you can reduce the amount of expenses that you, that a system like ours would have. Yeah, this is a great point. So before we started recording, you were explaining to me kind of the traditional expense model for a normal insurance company. And then you were making the point that with blockchain, your expense model is is fractional to that. So maybe, maybe uh, explain that in a little more detail for us. Traditional insurance systems, they're going to operate on expense loads. They have loss adjusters, they have underwriters, they have executives, they have agents and brokers to pay for distribution. And so, you know, an expense model on a traditional carriers, you know, can run 30 to as high as 40, 45% on some carriers. Now that means an insurance company that's focusing on investment income is focusing on a one-to-one model, $1 in, $1 out in losses and expenses. So that means they have to have, you know, a 60% loss ratio or lower if they're operating at a 40% expense ratio in order to create that one-to-one so they can have the investment income. Um, But in our system, focusing on the personal wallet theft side of things where you get more isolated risks, and so it becomes very manageable. You know, you're able to operate at, if you were to get 1% market penetration of the 300 million crypto holders, you know, 1% would generate a billion dollars in revenue. A billion dollars in revenue in a traditional system, they would be having an expense load between 300 and $400 million, right? And so in our system, we could operate similarly on the same levels of revenue, but do that with two to $3 million of expense load, which is far, far different um, because we're focusing on the technology versus heavily driven, you know, manpower. I just thinking about that, I can kind of imagine, you know, you, you're not going to have an agent network, right? There's not going to be a local office for Fairside that I, I come down and sit down with my agent and sign up for my wallet protection policy. So I can imagine all those costs going away. But what about the underwriting analysis? I would assume you still have some marketing costs, right? And then you've got the people building the technology, like compare some of these other parts of the business. Yeah. So traditional insurance systems, you know, have a fairly large marketing budget. And so that marketing budget in general um, could be commercials, could be radio ads, but part of that marketing budget is also, you know, distribution channels. And so we believe that, you know, looking at distribution channels is is a great go-to-market strategy in order to get to the people. And so we intend to keep some of that in our system. And one of the major ways in which we do that is we focus on the wallets, you know, having fair side, like replication of like, say the travel insurance experience where inside of a wallet where you hold all of your assets, there could be an easy onboarding opt-in option for getting cover for your wallet. And so, you know, through that, we look at distribution channels as the wallet and we intend to share top line revenue with wallets, top dexes, um, similar to how an insurance company would distribute through agents and brokers. We want to distribute our cost sharing network in the same way. I have a bunch of questions because I was reading into the white paper this morning. You're doing some pretty interesting stuff. So there is a token that you're creating, uh, FSD, and there's a staking mechanism to support the the network. And there's a, a level of rewards, but I think it also kind of fuels the entire uh, premium payment model and, and then payouts. Can you just talk us through what that architecture is, like why that's necessary to enable what you've built? So, you know, at launch, you know, we're looking at a product first launch, token second. And so 
when we do a very closed system where you have just early stakeholders in the network, the token doesn't become as integral. But when you want to decentralize the system and you want community to come together, like basically to create the social and economic good that traditional insurance would provide through our network, you that's where the token becomes like an integral part of the system. And in our model, we use, and you made the point earlier, very large capital pools, right? Like insurers have. We use a very large capital pool as one network staking system. And in that system, stakeholders can come into this network and they can bond their Ethereum to our network. And when they bond the Ethereum, uh, we mint the FSD token. The FSD token then acts as a semi-synthetic to um, the system itself, its price is represented on a few factors. One is the amount of Ethereum in the capital pool, but also there are long-term drivers looking at adoption of the product, as well as the short-term driver would be the immediate need of the capital pool. Is it overfunded or underfunded? And those factors come into the token pricing model. So as a stakeholder though, you hold the FSD in your wallet. And the FSD then is able to basically represent your position within the network. And when you do that, you're using the large capital pool. As losses are paid in the system, we're pulling Ethereum in order to pay claims within our network. And so when you pull the Ethereum, there's a marginal decrease in the value of each token you hold, but there is no permanent loss of that token because through strong actual modeling, the capital pool should continue to grow year over year with underwriting profit and the lack of expenses that the system has. And so if you start with you know X in the system, you're going to have X plus your underwriting profit, which one of the main drivers is the amount of ETH in the capital pool. So the token price itself is increased. Um, and so there's no liquidation factor that you see in, in today in the systems. And that's where we have like a non-permanent loss um, versus a permanent loss where staking in today's system is a one-to-one -one staking mechanism where you stake the project pool and then you liquidate the stakeholders and the stakeholders only getting a very small portion of a premium. And so the risk reward ratio, never it's always one to point something. It's never one over one. You know what I mean? You never get to a one to three or one to five or one to 10. It never happens in the system because the concentration of risk is so great in those systems. And concentration of risk is the capital efficiency killer of any strong capital efficient model. And so in our system, the FSD token is used in a few different ways. One, to represent the system, as I explained, but two, holding FSD builds a conviction score in our system. And when you build a conviction score, that represents your proportional amount of rewards that are paid as others leave the system because we have a mint and burn function on our curve. And so when you burn the FSD in order to exit the position, it's an unlocked position. So stakeholders can leave when they want, but you pay a tribute fee in order to leave. And so when the tribute fee is paid, it is distributed to all token holders who remain in the network. This conviction score that is driving the amount of rewards that you receive. So it's incentivizing long-term holders, believers in our network, and those that are really looking to create the social and economic benefit that you know insurance alternative products can provide to the space. Additionally, we use it for governance um, within the system. So in a decentralized system, governance is very important. And so that conviction score that you're using, um, we apply that to governance thresholds and allow um, users to help govern the network. Yeah, this was one of the things that was really interesting when I was reading the white paper is it's set up that the community is the one uh, deciding when to pay out on a claim. And I can imagine there's all sorts of unusual incentives that, that that model creates. Talk a little bit about how you've envisioned that and how you expect it to work. Well, ultimately, if you're not looking at liquidation of a stakeholder, 
And there's more benefit by acting fairly than unfairly because the marginal decrease in the token value. We expect by opening the governance system and allowing everyone to vote on claims that it can, and this is in DeFi losses, and we can talk a little bit more about the, um, the product launch, but in a DeFi loss, um, if you're not liquidated and you have this open voting system that you don't have to stake to vote, which can call into question the objectivity of the voting, right? Because you're basically in this moral and financial dilemma in the current systems as to when I vote, if I vote fairly, then they can liquidate my assets. And if I vote unfairly, they burn my stake. And so you, you can't really create a fair system in that way. And so what we're looking at is if there's more incentive for the user, for our stakeholders and our participants to act fairly through the marginal decrease in value of tokens. And at the end of any year, we expect an underwriting profit, then it makes sense that the user is able to vote fairly within our system. And we don't vote on individual losses. And so to increase participation in the system, you only vote on the event. So let's use an example of like a cream finance hack, right? Is cream finance something that we intended to pay out based on and sharing this loss based on you know the type of loss it was this is you vote once in the system if the answer is affirmed yes then all other losses in the system aren't necessary to vote individually on them so if you were a participant in the cream finance hack and you've lost assets then now we you're just sent over to one of our partners hellborn who then verifies that you were part of that loss event and then the system we can expedite the payout for you so as a participant in governance, okay. you're voting one time, but you get paid every single time somebody has a loss because they pay an assessor's bounty. And so every time to open the claim, I pay this assessor bounty. I've only voted one time and I may get paid 200 times in a DeFi loss because there could be a global loss where a lot of people are affected by that loss. So in DeFi, it works differently than in um, personal wallet theft protection. In personal wallet theft protection, we look at it differently because there is a higher likelihood of fraud in that system because you can spin up a secondary wallet. You can just claim to be fished. And so now we work with um, Naxo, um, which is an elite group of cyber investigators, um, ex-former special agents from the FBI. And these guys are top of their field. And we have um, an arrangement with them where we've had this formal agreement where they come in and basically assess all the losses for us on an individual basis. And they're basically creating a trust score for the individual loss. And that trust score is then used by the governance committee to pay out the loss. Because if we can trust the individual that is making the claim, then we believe that we can trust that this claim is legitimate. And so it expedites that system by using this, this disinterested third party that has a reputation at, online. And what they're trying to do is just create fairness in the system as well with all of us. And so it really exploits that system. And then on top of that, we use chain analysis, reactor tools, and, and some other things as well in order to really dial that in and make sure that, that this isn't a user that's generating insurance fraud on our system. I hadn't even started thinking about the variations of fraud here, but that seems like uh, you're going to be faced with probably a lot of people who are attempting to pull off something like that, where they hack themselves, in effect. It, you know, if in the system, if you do that, then you're setting Naxo and Chainalysis loose on you. I mean, I wouldn't want that <laughs> as an individual, right? I have to be fairly sophisticated to do that. But we've also put in loss controls in the system in thresholds that you know keep us resilient. And, and one of the things is to start off our system with offering coverage from one to 100 ETH, 
in value. In, in doing that, you know, we prevent very, very large losses and, or any one individual from having an overwhelming negative effect on our capital pool. And, you know, we can scale that up as we get loss experience and we see how it goes, but it will satisfy the masses. And that's really been what we've been after from the beginning is to foster Web3 adoption and to really deliver critical infrastructure to the space. Give me a sense of what it costs me to insure a personal wallet. You gave that range of amounts that I can insure, mm-hmm. but l- let's say you know I've got 10 ETH in my MetaMask. Like, What is the policy cost? So policy cost is 1.95%. It's not so much a policy as much as it is a membership into our network. And so the network is based around cost sharing of others' losses. And so as stakeholders come into the network or contributors um, contribute to the network, you know, they're sharing in the losses of others for the reward system that's put in place. And so ultimately, 1.95% is the launch membership cost. But like I said earlier, and with loss experience that we can toggle that up or down, our experience and our frequency and severity numbers show us that we believe we can come down off of that number. Um, and we can even get as close to 1%, which I think would be very palatable. But through the market research, we found that 80% of people still want to buy our product at 1.95. And it's not to have some huge underwriting profits. We just want to make sure that we remain resilient early in the, in the system. And that if our frequency or severity is the threat to any intratech startup really is going to be early when you don't have the hundreds of millions of dollars of assets that you've built over time. And so that's where we have to be as cautious as we can. But the nice thing is, you know, if you want to insure roughly uh, $10,000 of assets, it costs you $195 for the year. And this is an annual membership into the network. Also, we don't exclude wallet types or chain types. And so, you know, we're chain agnostic in the coverage that we offer. The only difference is that you will have to get paid back in ETH or DAI in our system earlier in the system. And then we will eventually migrate over to paying in you know, the chain in which you lost the assets, you know, you can elect the chain to get paid back in. But right now it's ETH or DAI and it still works for, for all wallet types. Uh, that actually seems incredibly reasonable to me, given the the risk of loss that I think a lot of people are exposed to in the ecosystem today. So shifting to a slightly different topic, as I understand it today, the insurance industry is incredibly regulated, right? There's there's state level uh, regulators in, in the US, you know, prices are controlled, policy premiums are controlled on, on a lot of products. You know, there's federal backing for certain types of products like, you know, flood zone insurance. It's an incredible incredibly complex landscape, which I think is built a bit of a moat. You know, that's why there's these really large companies that make lots and lots of money in insurance. What does that mean for you? Have you had to navigate the the regulatory world in order to bring this product to market? You know, we we did go and explore that route. But to your point, there is regulatory moats that have been created. This is a Titan industry. You don't just jump in, right? But what one thing that we did find, um, in through all of our research was that using a cost sharing network, one, it lends itself like amazingly well to decentralization. So that was like a starting point. But two, cost sharing in the US is widely used as a insurance alternative for the healthcare industry. It was born out of like Christian ministries, ultimately parishioners coming together to share in the loss of others who couldn't afford health insurance. And then it's developed into an industry now, and it doesn't fall within the purview of insurance commission. And so if you can model that same system with people all coming together, like-minded individuals sharing in the loss of others that share the same beliefs, then we're able to mimic that system and operate as an insurance alternative. And when you overlay a modern actuarial model on top of that, you get a very resilient system. 
Interesting. Okay, so a cost sharing network means that you're not you're not technically an insurance product and therefore you're not under the insurance commission. Yep. And so it's it's operates differently. There's no central like group, there's no promise to pay, there's no contractual obligation, which also causes a lot of the contention with inside of the insurance sector and the end user, right? The insured, where every time as it's not lost on the insureds that every time a traditional insurer pays a claim, it's to their own detriment. Um, but in our system, we believe we can create more of a social and economic benefit to everyone in the system, those contributors to the network, as well as those members in the network, where we can have this fully robust system where everyone wins and there are no losers. Yeah, this is a really exciting model. So I've been to the website. I've clicked the join the waitlist button. I'm now eagerly <laughs> anticipating when I get to join. Talk to us as as we wind down the conversation a little bit about the roadmap from here. Like when does this open up for general participation? When can I get my, my insurance policy on my personal wallet? Um, membership will start is anticipated right now in Q3. So we completed our final audit, we're in a code freeze. We're developing the DAP a little differently now um, because this has been multiple multiple iterations of this product. Like I mentioned earlier, we have three different products built out. Um, we're launching with one to start. And so we've really focused the DAP and redesigned down to just the personal wallet theft protection and really focused heavily on the user experience. You know, we believe that Web 2 experiences seem to be smoother and less clunky than a Web 3 experience as it stands today. And so what we've done is really focused on that user experience, trying to make that a seamless process so that the users and, and members of Fairside Network can sign up in minutes and not take you know, a very long time in that process. It's still a permissionless system for the user to get into the system. And that takes around two minutes, which is a very like reasonable amount of time. And so for us, you know, the idea of launching product first uh, on our roadmap is Q3. Then we launch um, staking. And this is a sophisticated model. It is going to take some time for us to dial in actual models so that they can be supported by the community and not, you know, like the founders and a core group of like governance level numbers. But I think we can get there relatively quick, ho hopefully before uh, Bitcoin goes to the moon. So... <laughs> <laughs> but it is a nice time to launch. This is a great time to launch because if you launch in the height of a bull market, there's so much distraction in, in the system. And the token also causes some issue of distraction in a, when you have a very strong product. And so, you know, for us, you know, holding back on the token to a later date really allows the user to focus on the usability of our product and, and how important it is to the ecosystem. And when you have a token involved, the token itself can distract people away from how good the product is when you have volatility within your token. And so really the focus is product first, token second, and then start to develop um, into these other lines of coverage, you know, the DeFi and the exchange and third party risk. But we also have models right now, we're, we're built to be high frequency, low severity, um, which is why we limited to 100 ETH. But there are more catastrophic models when we start to look at how we want to cover protocols um, so that the protocol can get coverage. And because we believe that the user has one line of cover but there'll be a coordination of benefits. You know, if you look at some of the DeFi protocols, it's cost prohibitive for them to purchase a billion dollars in insurance coverage for all their staked assets, right? But if you have coordination of benefits through two different segments of Fairside, where the protocol can purchase a layer of cover and then individuals purchase a layer of cover as well, then you get coordination of benefits and we're able to fully support the ecosystem on all levels. Amazing. You've spent a long time before launching Fairside in the traditional insurance business, 
do you envision a future where the products you're building at Fairside become mainstream? Part of uh, you know that that every insurance carrier has a has an option like this. You know, I definitely believe that we'll go mainstream, and our our, our focus is on bring adoption to Web3. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons we focused on our distribution points of being the wallets and DEXs and top projects in the space, because we need to get product and brand awareness out there, um, especially as first mover on personal wallet protection. You know, it becomes, you know, necessary that people have like this awareness of what you're doing, because we've seen through the market research too, that a vast majority of people don't even know that insurance exists in the space on any level, right? Um, and so for us, it's, it's getting that awareness out there to the individual. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely see it being mainstream at some point. I mean, Fairside, the way it's been designed and built, you know, we can tackle nearly any type of loss and it doesn't have to be just crypto, right? Like what we've developed can move into flood and into crop and into all these other forms of coverage. It do, it's not isolated to crypto. We just intend on conquering crypto first. And then once we've hit some critical mass there, we can look at other product lines, but definitely it's a mainstream product. Amazing. I'm really looking forward to the, the product launching later this year and, uh, and being able to participate. Brandon, thanks so much for joining us on Public Key. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. Our team's been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So right now, do me a favor, take out your phone, head over to your favorite social media app. You can subscribe to our new TikTok, our revamped YouTube. You can sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter. And of course, follow us on X or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, I really hope you've already downloaded your copy of the Chainalysis 2023 Geography of Cryptocurrency Report. But if you haven't, then head to the show notes for a link right now. The team absolutely crushed this year's report and produced one of our best pieces of research yet. We go deep into identifying the differing economic and cultural circumstances that drive adoption and crypto usage around the world. And if you missed the global crypto adoption webinar last week with Chainalysis researcher Eric Jardine and VP of Global Policy Caroline Malcolm, well, guess what? You can check it out on demand. There's a link in the show notes. Last thing, stay tuned for our upcoming podcast with Marius Wrights. He's the general manager for Africa at Luno Crypto Exchange. And we discuss crypto in sub-Saharan Africa and how it's used as both an inflation mitigation tactic and a trading vehicle. Enjoy.